0: This is Glenda Smith, SPE's Vice President of Communications, and today we're talking with Adam Siminski. Thank you for joining me today, Adam.
1: Great to be here with you Glenda and uh, it's a pleasure to work with you and all of the people at SPE. Thank
0: you. We reconnected during the International Petroleum Technology Conference in Saudi Arabia in January, but we first met back in the mid-1980s around the time of the 1986 oil price shock. A lot of people are saying that, that this one is even worse than what the industry experienced then. Do you agree? Well we
1: had a couple of things going on at the same time. I think in looking back in history we've had supply shocks and we've had demand shocks uh, but we never had a simultaneous supply and demand shock. There was a OPEC meeting in early March that didn't go very well and the outcome of that was a number of OPEC members who had been holding spare capacity uh, including Saudi Arabia, Russia, and others uh, increased their production. and A lot of people thought that that is what ultimately drove oil prices down into the teens and, you know, even shortly or temporarily below $10 a barrel for WTI. Uh, but what really uh, makes this particular crisis different than the ones in the past uh, is the huge, demand shock that's come from the social distancing rules associated with trying to deal with the uh, coronavirus pandemic. Um, the amount of oil that OPEC and OPEC Plus members um, were holding off the market was uh, something like 3 million barrels a day, uh, and that amount looked like it was coming into the market in April. Uh, and people were talking about a price war, you know, within OPEC. But that only lasted literally about one week um, after the early March uh, OPEC meeting in Vienna. And that what happened in mid-March was everybody at that point began to realize the extent of the problem with uh, social distancing rules airlines not flying people not driving uh, millions and millions of people all over the world uh, working remotely a lot of people at home and and told by the authorities to stay at home Uh, businesses closed Uh, the result of that was in early march people had thought that maybe demand in April might be down three, four, five million barrels a day. Uh, by the end of March, those estimates for what was gonna happen in April were 15 million barrels a day, 20, 25, even 30 million barrels a day of demand destruction. Uh, so uh, I kind of look at, at what was happening and I I think that 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 level of drop in demand that we uh, have already worked our way through part of that in april and we're still seeing the effects of that in may and it'll continue for a while um, is is larger than anything that the world has seen since the beginning of the oil industry literally
0: absolutely Um, Our CEO, Mark Rubin, has uh, said the only analog he can find is back to the 1920s when the East Texas field was discovered and the market was flooded, which eventually led to the state of Texas to putting in production quotas, et cetera. But you have to go back that far to find any kind of of simultaneous supply and demand uh, sort of shock. Right.
1: And the the East Texas field discovery uh, was... uh, a huge uh, supply shock that then actually um, played out into the depression in the 1930s. So again, you had, you had a little combination. Um, but I think this was, uh, this, the, the rapidity, the, the speed of the, of the demand uh, destruction that occurred with the coronavirus, I think even exceeded what we saw uh, during the 1930s.
0: Yeah, I think that was the double whammy, the, the speed with which it, it mm-hmm. happened. Um, I, I know I've used, I think, a little over a quarter of a tank of gas in my car since early <laughs> March. So uh, multiply me by the millions of people around the world, and uh, and it, you start to see, uh, and of course, airplanes not flying internationally. There's a, That's a huge amount of, of right. fuel. So one of the
1: interesting questions, Glenn, is going to be, um, you know, when we come out of the social distancing rules as they're eased. I think people are gonna to wanna to get back in their cars. They're gonna be more comfortable in cars uh, than they you know, might be in mass transportation, buses, trains, subways, and so on. Uh, and we might actually see a surge in gasoline consumption. Diesel fuel consumption is already, the last few weeks is picking up a little bit um, in the United States relative to where it was before. So we're seeing you know, things beginning to, to come back. But it will be kind of an interesting tug of war between uh, people getting in their cars to drive to work or using virtual platforms like Zoom and Skype and WebEx and all of the others to get a lot of business done uh, working uh, remotely and, uh, and maybe not even needing as much uh, airline traffic. You know, again, I think airlines, uh, you know, will will come back too, and people will travel again. Uh, But I think that 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 might take a little bit longer to, uh, you know, maybe we're really going to need a vaccine before people are going to be willing to get on an airplane or they're going to have to really rely on the airlines and the uh, central governments around the world, uh, making sure that the air filtration systems on airplanes are going to take care of the issue of airborne
0: Articles. I, I think it's clear that the world is going to change. We just don't fully understand the ways in which that's going to happen yet.
2: Want more insights from today's conversation? SPE publications cover all aspects of the upstream oil and gas industry, from technology and careers to production and operations. Learn more about our peer-reviewed journals, magazines, books, technical papers, and technical reports. It's all at spe.org/publications.
0: So back in, uh, in the mid 80s, one of the things you and I had in common um, was the, the need for and the need to understand what was happening with energy data. And during the 86 downturn, it was really hard to understand what was happening because of the quality and, more importantly, the lag in collecting data. Then between 2012 and 2016, you served as administrator of the Department of Energy's Energy Information Administration, the organization that's responsible for collecting, modeling, and providing statistical data about our industry. Tell our, re- our listeners a little bit about that experience and whether you were able to improve those data lags.
1: Well, I had the privilege of uh, serving in uh, President Obama right at the beginning of the second term and the uh, last few months of the president's first term. Uh, president, during his first campaign and even his first term in office, was largely interested in uh, longer-term issues, uh, how to transition the u.s energy scene from uh, hydrocarbon fuels to renewables and and that kind of thing Uh, but at the end of 2011 the libyan crisis occurred and a million and a half barrels a day of light sweet crude oil went off the global markets and it caused oil prices to go up and it was a great concern to political leaders all over the world Slotted EIA was vacant. Richard Newell, who's now the president of Resources for the Future in Washington, uh, was headed back to Duke University. Howard Grinspach was the deputy at EIA, was serving as acting administrator, and the president asked his people to find somebody who knew more about the oil markets, and. and they, they asked me if I would be interested in serving as EIA administrator and being a big consumer of EIA products all through my Wall Street career, I really jumped at the chance to do that. I was retiring from the, my financial job and, and really thought the opportunity to work at EIA and shape EIA was, was going to be a, a fantastic experience. What I thought EIA needed was to be a little bit more timely and more relevant. The oil uh, supply forecasts for EIA typically were based on data that was more than a year old, just as an example. And in the period when shale was really beginning to grow strongly uh, in 2012, that just simply wasn't really ideal at all in terms of having fairly uh, accurate Uh, forecasts for oil production in in the United States and natural gas as well. So uh, when I got to EIA, we we began to look for ways to uh, make near-term estimates of things that typically would have been backward looking. And we tried to look forward and tried to use the number of different statistical tools and data collection options, including uh, things that were available from other federal agencies uh, data on how much oil was moving by rail, for example, that was available from the transportation department. And this was a little new for EIA uh, to kind of step into a more timely collaborative approach to to the process. I think it ultimately ended up making EIA a much more relevant and very strong data uh, analysis and collection agency. It made the reports that were coming from EIA uh, much more useful to policymakers uh, in the United States and and actually all over the world because of the the quality and accuracy of the of the data, so it was a great platform to inherit and to build on.
0: I think that we have seen some some positive changes, especially the new shale report that they you know launched. Well, it's not new anymore, but <laughs> launched while you were there to try and get some better data. Do you feel like the better data we have today? Um, helps might help to reassure energy markets which tend to respond to every rumor innuendo, take a you know, a change in the API's stock report as, oh my gosh, the whole trend is going this way when um you know we both know a statistical anomaly may cause a a, a weekly uh uh shift. Um do you feel like like it's a little better these days? Uh, you know, I, I
1: think it is. There's always room for improvement. Um you know if you you know the One of the sayings that uh, is often used in management is if you can't measure it, you can't manage it. (laughs) And if you're trying to manage something or understand it or use it in your analysis, you've got to be able to measure it, measure it. Uh, One of the things that uh, EIA is looking at now, and I really hope they move on this, is to get uh, more timely data on well shut-ins. That would really, I think, uh, help deal with this rapid decline in production that's probably underway coming from very low prices and uh, lack of capital investment uh, in shale production that's happening right now. Uh, you know, Generally speaking, statistical agencies, including EIA, tend to do things, uh, again, very accurately looking back in time. And uh, the challenge uh, in a period like the one that we're in now, crisis times, is to get data that helps you understand where you are today and where you might be tomorrow Rather than giving you the, you know, the best look at at where you were last year. (laughs) (laughs) Indeed. Back to to that. Back to the Libyan crisis in 2011. One of the things that we started at EIA after that, uh, and it still has proven to be uh, a very uh, valuable contribution to kind of energy analysis, is uh, unplanned outages. in oil production. Uh, the Libyan crisis was an unplanned outage. Uh, there were, there was a big actual uh, drop in oil production across the world uh, in 2012 uh, that was coming in little bits and pieces from a lot of different countries. Libya was one of them, but Iran was another. There was, there was, it, it, was it was one of those death by a thousand cuts kind of thing. Um, oil production uh, was, uh, faltering in a lot of different countries, and some of the amounts seem small, but when you added them all up, it was causing a fairly chaotic situation in the oil markets, pushing prices up and causing a lot of heartache for uh, you know, energy consumers around the world. And we figured out a way to track that on a very timely basis, and EIA is still doing it. And those kinds of innovations, and they're still underway. Uh, at EIA are very important.
0: I think that's a great legacy that you can, uh, can, you, can look back on, because uh, obviously anything that gives us better data allows us to plan and understand what's happening uh, better uh, than we would otherwise be able to.
2: Much of the work of the Society of Petroleum Engineers is accomplished by members. Become a volunteer and use your knowledge and experience to influence SPE programs and activities. As a volunteer, you can enhance your leadership skills while meeting and working with other SPE members from across the globe. There are many opportunities to get involved, regardless of your experience, location, or experience level. To learn more about the League of Volunteers, visit spe.org volunteer.
0: So for the last two years, um, you've been president at King Abdullah Petroleum Studies and Research Center, or CAPSARC, and it's an independent research institute designed to advance the understanding of energy and the economy. So tell us a little bit about CAPSARC and, and what you're doing there. I, I have to admit, when I saw that, I was like, okay, so Adam's moved to managing a research institute. That's <laughs> got to be a little bit of a shift. And yet, uh, I see elements of, of similarity.
1: CapSarc is uh, is actually a, uh, very similar to the EIA and parts of the IEA and other institutions who look at um, energy issues and try to do it from a fact-based perspective. Um, we are a think tank. Um, we have been rated uh, fairly highly. We're in among the top 15. Uh, think tanks for energy and resource issues, as well as Middle East, North Africa, general uh, issues, as measured by the University of Pennsylvania Think Tank Survey, uh, which is a peer voted kind of ranking of of how think tanks are doing. In addition to energy uh, broadly uh, and, and the economy, uh, we also do quite a bit of work on environmental issues And we can talk a little bit about that in a a bit if you'd like to. But this kind of three major areas of energy, the economy, and the environment uh, is something that's of critical importance to Saudi Arabia and and to countries really all across the, the world. We are trying to provide fact-based analysis to help inform policymakers here in the kingdom of the consequences of the choices that they end up having to make uh, in in the uh, energy area. Uh, energy is a huge part of the Saudi economy. You know, depending on how you measure it, it's half of the, the Saudi economy. And so having a, a think tank type organization working closely with the Ministry of Energy, uh, Ministry of Finance, Ministry of Planning and Economy, and so on is uh, is very important to uh, Saudi Arabia's uh, understanding of of the issues that drive the energy market. So, in a sense, CapSarc is trying to do some of the same things uh, that uh, that EIA was doing in the in the U.S. Uh, we don't have a data collection mandate in the same way that. Uh, EIA does. uh, But we have been uh, putting together uh, data that can be used by our own researchers and anybody else. It's available freely on our website, um, capsarp.org. Data and analysis uh, that we do have, and we've been uh, trying to concentrate on data for not just Saudi Arabia, but Uh, other countries in the uh, Gulf area, because it's not always easy to find. And it makes it a lot easier for researchers to uh, put together their own uh, papers. The other thing that CAPSARC is trying to do uh, with me here now is a bit like the story that we were talking about at EIA. Uh, CAPSARC was founded on the idea of doing long-term academic studies and making sure that uh, voices from the uh, Gulf region were counted well uh, in the peer-reviewed academic literature for energy and economics and the environment. Uh, But we are now trying to make sure that the reports that we're doing and even our longer-term academic studies uh, have a relevancy for our local stakeholders uh, to help them make decisions. Uh, Just as an example, uh, we did a peer-reviewed uh, paper uh, a couple of years ago now on the value of OPEC spare capacity to the global economy and uh, and we published that paper and essentially what it said was uh, spare capacity reduces volatility and that vol- lower volatility actually has a positive net value for the global economy it helps boost GDP uh, for all you know across the world uh, the. Uh, a number of people tried to find holes in our argument, didn't find, uh, you know, I, I think not very, not successfully. That paper has held up pretty well. Uh, and and I think that it's been particularly important. And I think now people are actually going back and having another look at that in light of the collapse in oil prices. Uh, what happened with oil prices is really almost a failure of, of uh, enough countries to use uh, spare capacity and and strategic reserve capacities to buy when prices are falling for reasons like the demand collapse from coronavirus, uh, or sell into markets when uh, when there are um, political issues uh, uh, or rapid economic growth that are driving demand faster. Uh, so, uh, I'm I'm having a lot of fun uh, here in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, uh, doing many of the same things that I did when I was on Wall Street, and when I was at the Energy Information Administration, uh, or actually at, at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, uh, where I went after EIA. Um, the, the combination of kind of trying to use Wall Street techniques to improve data collection and analysis and bring think tank culture uh, to, uh, to approaches to policy analysis is uh, something that is, has uh, been really a privilege for me.
0: The Saudis have always played an interesting role there in terms of being the swing producer. And I think the world economy became dependent on it, but perhaps didn't realize the benefits to themselves from that. So I I think that was, uh, that was great. Um, So one of the other things you mentioned was the environmental research that's happening at CAPSARC. Um, Tell us a little more about that. I know there's some stuff about the circular economy and the energy transition.
1: Well, you know the the concept of the circular economy has been around for a long time, uh, and uh, there's uh, a lot of work has been done on on how to uh, reduce reuse and recycle materials uh, in the economy uh, to uh, to get rid of the things that you don't want. <laughs> And, uh, and enhance the things that you do want. We at CAPSARC have been looking at kind of an extension of that idea. and We call it the circular carbon economy. And what we said was, you know, uh, the idea that the world is quickly gonna move to all renewable energy uh, is, is not an easy thing to do and may be very expensive and, and not even desirable. Uh, there are many uh, countries in the developing world who still need uh, concentrated sources of energy and relatively inexpensive energy, could be relying on uh, hydrocarbons for a long time to come. Now, what we all know that climate change and global warming is real, and that's believed in Saudi Arabia as it is in many other countries. Um, I think that the question that comes up, and certainly here in Saudi Arabia, is that if people are going to continue to use hydrocarbons, is there a way that we can figure out how to make that doable uh, without jeopardizing uh, the either the economy or the environment? And the idea of the circular carbon economy is to add a fourth R to the reduce, reuse, and recycle uh, idea, and we and that's remove, and we like to frame it in the in a concept that was built, developed by a guy by the name of Bill McDonough, uh, who's an environmental architect actually, uh, who uh, works out of uh, the United States. Bill uh, was one of the early proponents of the circular economy. And he's very intrigued by the idea of the circular carbon economy. And he thinks of carbon in and, and three ways. There's uh, living carbon, uh, durable carbon, and fugitive carbon. So the durable carbon is things, uh, uh, you know, that we can be things like plastics uh, that stay in the, the uh, that last for a long time. You know, and there are other examples of, of durable carbon that, uh, that remain in, uh, in our environment for a long time and, uh, and are not harmful at all. Then you have living carbon, and living carbon is a you know we our bodies are made up of <laughs> a lot of carbon, for example, and we have we breathe out carbon dioxide. Uh, living carbon is in is in trees, and can think of a cycle there of how carbon is uh, is produced and recycled through the living part of the environment, uh, sequestered um, in biological. Um, ways uh, and again then is not not a problem and it actually can be part of the solution. The biggest problem that we have is fugitive carbon and that's carbon that's going out into the atmosphere and isn't being captured and is building up uh, in the atmosphere causing you know what everybody refers to as the greenhouse problem and greenhouse gases and and our idea is that well we can reduce how much of that fugitive carbon is going out we can reuse some of it uh, for example uh, you can turn carbon dioxide into um, fertilizer uh, and methanol, uh, just as an example, or you can recycle it uh, to, um, to, again, prevent it from getting into the atmosphere and being fugitive. But the remainder that is going into the atmosphere, and I love the word fugitive carbon because we can think of that as we wanna capture that. We wanna capture that fugitive carbon and do something with it. And we could either sequester it biologically, as you know, part of that living carbon cycle, or we could sequester it geologically. And, and certainly the Society of Petroleum Engineers knows all about that. <laughs> um, finding ways to to geologically sequester carbon dioxide is something that petroleum engineers have been working on for a long time. They know how to do it. It's a little expensive, uh, but with you know, the right tools, the right research, um, the right technology, we may be able to bring the cost down enough on that uh, to really make a lot of progress at reducing uh, that fugitive carbon that's that's in the air. And the, the combination of Putting all of these tools to use, reduce, reuse, recycle, and remove, uh, I think is a way to allow all of us across the world to use um, hydrocarbon resources in a way that continues to benefit people and the economy uh, without really harming the environment. It's going to take a coordinated effort. It's going to take a lot of work on research and technology, and it may take some time to implement all of this but it's hugely important petroleum engineering is going to play a critical role in getting this done
0: i agree i think that um we'll be hearing more and i love to know more about over time about the research that you guys are doing in that area because i think it's a it's a it's a big part of how our industry is really part of the solution um as much as 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 part of the problem as many people view us or many people view us as as the problem not even as part of the problem but <laughs> that,
1: um you wonder, that's absolutely correct i mean it is i think what people are thinking too many people are thinking that there's uh that carbon is the enemy uh and that oil and gas are the problem yet uh they're critical for economic development and and we just need to find better ways manage the externalities that come with it, and, uh, and I know that there are a lot of papers being written by members of the Society of Petroleum Engineers uh, on how to do this, and, and with uh, proper funding of technology, I think that a lot of progress can be made.
0: I think there is some progress being made, and, and, I, and I know we'll see more, um, and we'll look forward to hearing about the work you guys are doing.
2: Are you considering becoming an SPE member? When you join SPE, you join a society of dedicated professionals just like you, working to address the technical challenges of the global oil and gas industry. SPE membership gives you the opportunity to make local and global connections and build a network of influential technical leaders from every discipline. Learn more at SPE.org slash join. Um, so I've. I
0: I'd be remiss if I didn't come back to uh energy markets and uh, and where you think things are going over the next couple of years. Do you have any projections about what how long you think it'll take supply and demand to come back into balance
1: you know i i in my career in in energy analysis, which started in the early 1970s <laughs> I've been through i don't know i i think i it depends on how you count them at least um five or six cycles uh the 1970s were uh you know we the 1960s energy prices were relatively flat and and uh most people were uh you know really thinking about other things uh in the 1960s then we had the uh you know two huge price increases in the 1970s and it really put uh, energy on on the map the uh, 1980s ended up being a period of price collapse. Uh, the 1990s were another flat period again, and, and I think we spent more time thinking about the internet in the 1990s than we did about, <laughs> about the, the you know, energy uh, issues. Uh, the first decade of, of, the, of the new century, the 2000s, we had enormous economic growth in Asia and general um, China specifically, and oil demand was growing in really, really strongly again, and we had another upcycle in prices. Uh, we then that's when we got shale gas and oil really started at the end of that decade, and and it worked so well uh, that we ended up with um, with another price collapse in. <laughs> In 2014, to be followed by by the one uh, that we've just had this year. Um, I I I'm going to stop with that history lesson and just say this has been an incredibly volatile industry with periods where prices were rising rapidly and then falling rapidly. And I don't think that we have ended that kind of cyclical situation, which suggests to me, and in fact, I'm very concerned that the Result of the very low prices that we're seeing now will be another big upcycle sometime over the course of the next few years. Uh, you know, probably not this year, and probably not in 2021, but it could certainly happen in 2022 or 2023. And uh, and I'm concerned that we'll we'll have a lot of people, you know, sitting around saying, "Well, how did this happen?" And the and the answer <laughs> is, you didn't read enough history. <laughs>
0: Or 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 study basic economics and the law of supply and demand. <laughs> well, right,
1: and and just to, to briefly circle back to the economics of supply and demand, you know, why is this industry so volatile? And the answer is, uh, economists would say, very low elasticities of both supply and demand. It takes big price increases to move the needle very much on changing supply or changing demand, and. And uh, you know, people just don't rush out and buy a a new, uh, you know, uh, fuel-efficient car if, if gasoline prices go to four dollars. And you know, in this particular cycle, one of the things that's that's that is really different is uh, typically when gasoline goes down. You know, gasoline was selling for a dollar a gallon in some places, and you would think people would be out. Uh, really driving around and then buying some SUVs to, <laughs> you know, that, well, new, we're, we're not getting, people aren't driving. You mentioned, uh, you know, earlier, Linda, that you had only used a quarter of a tank or something in the last, you know, couple of months. Um, people aren't getting the opportunity to take advantage of the low prices that we have. And it's, it's this is one of those things that's very strange uh, about this particular cycle. And it's compounded by the typically low elasticities that we have uh, in, the, in the oil and gas area for both supply and demand. So we'll see, I, you know, I hope we uh, learn, I hope uh, international institutions uh, can figure out a way to, to ameliorate these, uh, uh, these cycles that we get in. Uh, there is a big effort underway by the G20 oil ministers to try to find measures uh, to uh, bring some stability back into the oil markets, uh, you know, and they're not trying to push prices up in the sense is what they're trying to say is we can't really, nobody's, it's not in anybody's interest to have prices below replacement levels across the world. And, and that's, that's something that both producing and consuming countries fully agree on.
0: And maybe that's the bright spot of this is that perhaps this 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 time, <laughs> perhaps <laughs> our, our leaders have learned that that um, low oil prices are not always good.
1: <laughs> yeah, you know, and, it, and it's not, I, you know, I, I don't want to just blame the leaders or I don't want to say it's the politicians who don't get it. I mean, I think in some cases, it's just us. <laughs> <You know>? True, <laughs> true. Uh, we meet the enemy and the enemy is us. I think that people are, uh, there have actually been statistical studies done on this. People get anchored. They call it statistical anchoring. Uh, you get, uh, we, we perceive that events in the near term are much more important than things that have happened uh, even in the near past. Uh, so that, that the situation that we find ourselves in now, people tend to believe it's going to stay forever, you know, and it won't. Uh, you know, we're going to find a vaccine. Uh, we're going to find social distancing rules that work. We're going to find technology for testing that will enable us to to uh, get people back to work and get the economy moving again globally. Uh, and uh, right now, I think people are just really concerned that that the situation we're in isn't going to change, but it but it will. And uh, and my feeling is that it will also change in energy and. We are going to see, uh, you know, we already know that that um, non-hydrocarbon energy is becoming increasingly important and will be a huge contributor uh, to, uh, to um, the, the effort to um, fix the climate problems that we've gotten ourselves into. Uh, But it's not the only solution. It won't be the only solution for every country. There are still gonna be places where um, oil and natural gas uh, are gonna be very, very important to economic growth uh, and and societal development. Uh, That's gonna be true in Asia and Latin America, in the Middle East and in Africa. Um, so the solutions that work in the United States and work in Europe aren't gonna be perfect everywhere. Uh, but coming back to the circular carbon economy idea, I think we can find ways uh, to deal with the environmental consequences of hydrocarbon use in ways that allow us to, to uh, continue to, to uh, provide uh, for economic well-being, access to energy uh, for, um, for many more people than, than have it today. Uh, let me just finish up by saying, Glenda, that um, CAPSARC is working with the International uh, Energy Agency with the OECD, the Organization of Right, Not Cooperation and Development with IRENA, the International Renewable, Renewable uh, Energy Agency uh, and uh, the Nuclear Energy Agency, as well as the Global Carbon Capture and Sequestration Institute on a guide to what the circular carbon economy is all about. We'll have that uh, published um, uh, by uh, the uh, early fall of of this year. And I think it's gonna be a a kind of uh, one of those fact-based kinds of reports that will help policymakers around the world understand the issues uh, that they're facing with energy and the environment and the economy. And uh, we can all uh, make the decisions that need to be made on the basis of facts rather than, than, uh, than hearsay.
0: I think that sounds wonderful. I look forward to, to seeing that report when it's available. Adam, thank you for joining me today. I hope our listeners uh, find uh, find your, uh, your comments of interest and will uh, learn more about the work that's happening at CAPSARC.
1: Well, thank you for the opportunity to uh, chat with you. And, uh, and I look forward to seeing you at, uh, at more energy meetings around the world and particularly Society of Petroleum Engineering meetings. <laughs>
0: Great, thank you so much. We're looking forward to getting back to -to face-to-face meetings.